and the, those same people I thought were solid Christians are no longer walking with Jesus. And you always wonder, which one of us will it be? Well, guess what? You're living in that time. You're seeing it happen right before you. Maybe it wasn't the same circumstance that you thought would happen that would turn that person away from God or keep them away from youth group or keep them away from church or church functions or the things of God, eternally minded things. And we wonder how we slip so far. Maybe you have friends that have backslid now and, and you talk to them about it and they, they just can't bring themselves back because people are going to wonder, where has that person been? And it just feels awkward. Uh, my mom was actually talking to a person at the flower shop the other day and apparently was a Christian. And she was like, oh, so what church do you go to? She's like, well, I don't really go to church. You know, like I, I was burnt really bad by the church and I don't really go there anymore. And then, well, my mom's like, well, we have a great welcoming church at Calvary Chapel. You should come by and say, oh, the big church. Well, I don't fit in there and no one says hi to me when I walk in. And she complains. And how many of us have heard that before? No one says hi to me at youth group. I don't really fit in in the cliques at youth group. And my mom said something really profound. She said, well, you know what? If you're a Christian and your prayer is that Christ would increase and you would decrease, the fact that no one sees you should be an answer to your prayer. It's true, isn't it? Shouldn't we want to de decrease so that Christ can increase? And shouldn't we want to be behind the scenes serving others? But the biggest complaint and the biggest reason that keeps people away from the church is that no one notices me. No one meets my needs. And so because I, I have so many different options on church, I'll listen to it online. I'll go to this church or this youth group looks cooler. They do fun games or they have a speaker that kind of tackles the issues that I'm dealing with. And that pastor is kind of boring and I fall asleep. I don't get anything out of his messages. And you pick and choose because you have so many different options. Now, I went to California two weeks ago now and I went to a church there and it was a really hip church. Like everyone there was in their 20s to 30s, was young. We're in Los Angeles, so there are a lot of really good-looking people. We've, they've actually had Britney Spears, and uh, that's probably a bad example, but they've had people like Britney Spears and the Gilmore Girls and all these different TV stars go there to this church, and it's a pretty big church. So I go there, and I'm like trying to talk to people, and I go by myself. Like I don't know anybody. So I walk into the church, the greeters kind of wave at me, but there's, I literally I can walk in and walk out without one person saying hi to me. And I was like, wow, this is so different from our church. Because our church, you know, like you have Pastor Tom at the, at the door welcoming you in and, and people talking to you. And I was just thinking about that. And then it was kind of like the Holy Spirit speaking to me. It's like, if you feel so convicted that people aren't talking to you, why don't you go and talk to someone else? And so I did. I talked to, I went to the high school leader and I was talking to him and he thought I was a high school student. And then his friend comes over and he's like, are you in junior high or high school? I was like, oh my gosh. He's <laughs> like, I'm trying to serve the Lord here. But it was good. I got to pray with him and I, I got his contact information. But my point is, so many times we go to church to be served and not to serve. 
And I think this reveals an inconsistency between our words and our lives. This reveals a much deeper problem than the fact that we are going to church and we're hurt by other people. It's not just about how other people in the church behave. It's not about how other cliques or other people in youth group or Christian school behave. What is it? What could it be? What could be the problem that we're dealing with? Well, let's look at verse 1 of James chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You see, we always want to point the finger at the poisonous people in our lives. We want to find those people that are ruining church for us. Those people that I just can't stand. I, you know, life would be so easy if this person wasn't in the way. Or this is a person I'll never talk to again. This is a person I can't stand. Or maybe we'll blame our environment and say, well, I grew up in this home that was so not conducive to Christianity. My parents aren't saved or my parents are Christians, quote unquote, and they don't act like it. And because of that, I'm acting this way. Or because of this happening in my life, now I'm never going to be able to trust anyone anymore. And we'll blame other things. But James points out that the wars that occur between people stem from the problems and wars that occur inside a person. Let me say that again. The wars that occur in between people stem from wars that occur within a person. In other words, the battle that has to be fought is not necessarily out there somewhere. It doesn't matter experience. It doesn't matter upbringing. It doesn't matter bullies or teachers or parents or enemies or friends, it's not necessarily out there, but the war occurs inside. What's the proof of this? Verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Just going through these slowly, he says lust. You lust and do not have. How many of us know of a relationship a friendship that's been ruined because two people are fighting over who gets to date a person. Or you both like a person and because of that you're always combating or competing. How many people have been ruined by lust itself? I think it, it just shows the battle inside is that you're not really trusting for God to provide. You have jealousy inside of you. You want what other people have. And you're not trusting that God is the one who is able to give it to you. And that's where he says murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now people have suggested this isn't literally murder. But what he's saying is this is the violent language on how Christians treat each other. You murder each other with your hatred. Because you covet what they have and you do not obtain. Think about a person that you've hated so much. Because it seems like they've had everything handed to them, right? They didn't have to work for anything. They're just naturally gifted or they're naturally wealthy or their parents love them with this love and you, you're, you're coveting that kind of a relationship or you're coveting that possession. But the battle inside is that the real problem is that you're not content with what God has given you. Your assumption is that God gives to some people some things and other people, you know, you, you get the leftovers. 
and you fail to realize that God is the one who provides everything for a specific reason because he is sovereign. It's not like God is confused by your circumstances like, oh man, well, if people didn't treat you like this, I'd be able to do all of this for you. But because you're in this bad situation, I don't know how I'm going to rectify this at all. God does not act like that and God does not talk like that because he says, you fight in war, yet you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. In other words, it's kind of like your parents being like, well, what do you say? Please. That's kind of how it feels, right? Isn't that kind of offensive? Can you imagine? It's like, man, I wish I really had these things. Well, you should have asked me. Really, God? Do you really think that I should have asked you? How many times have I asked you about this thing, right? We'll think, we'll think in that kind of a term. But first, before we get to the person who says, I ask all the time, let's talk about the person who doesn't ask at all. Maybe the reason why you don't obtain is because you don't even ask for God to provide in that area. Maybe you feel like it's too simple. Well, I don't want to bother God with this request or I don't, I don't really know. I think the root of the problem is that you're not connecting the earthly need with the heavenly uh, provider. You're not connecting that you have an earthly need and it can be met by your heavenly provider. And we mustn't forget that. When we remember that, that should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to our needs when we have different needs in our life that need to be fulfilled. I'm not talking about wants. I'm talking about needs. But even wants. That's what he says, right? Yet you do not have because you do not ask. But before he says, uh, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. All these things that we want and the things that we need, we ask. And then we will receive. That's what he says. Think about the children of Israel. When they were in the desert, right? They are led out of Egypt. They were complaining like, God, really, you brought me out of Egypt to save us from the Egyptians. And now they're like, hindsight, they're looking back at it and they're just like regretting everything that they left. Because they're like, well, we were in Egypt, even though we were in slavery, I guess that was terrible. I, I guess it was terrible not having freedom. But at least we had food. At least we had shelter. And now we're in the desert and God's going to leave us here to die. Obviously not. You really think God is going to bring you out to the desert, save you with, you know, these 10 plagues, these 10 miracles that he does in the sight of Pharaoh and be like, and he led them out to the wilderness and they died. You know, what kind of Bible story would that be? They didn't realize that God wanted to finish a story that he, that he started in them. And in the same way, God has a work in, inside each and every one of you that he wants to finish. He has a creative work inside each and every one of your hearts. If you're a Christian here today, he has begun something in you. And he wants to do something through you. But we lose sight of that, don't we? We lose sight of the fact that God has begun a work. And so we get distracted with everything else and we start to complain. And that's what they did. Like, well, I guess it's great to have bread from heaven. God's going to bake us some bread and leave it on the floor so we don't even have to go harvest it. We just got to pick it up off the ground. And I want meat. And they complained. And God's like, really? I just gave you my own bread that I cooked myself. And you want meat. I'll give you meat. And he gives them quail. And, and the Bible tells how it comes out of their mouths. They vomit it. And it comes out their noses. So you're going to have so much meat. It's going to come out your nose. 
That's what happened because the things that we want aren't always good for us. Isn't that the case? But what is it that you need? First of all, we don't ask because we don't connect our heavenly need with our heavenly provide, earthly need with our heavenly provider, excuse me. And secondly, we also forget that God hears our prayers. The reasons that we don't usually ask God, we don't pray to God is because number one, we don't realize that God can give us those things. And number two, we forget that he hears our prayers. We forget verses like Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 20, 29, 12 through 13. We also forget verses like Isaiah 45, 19. God says, I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would, not, I would have not told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. Isaiah 45, 19. So we have to remember, first of all, that God remembers when we're in pain. He hears us. He sees us. He knows our thoughts. Even before we pray to him, he knows what we're thinking. Now, what about those people that have asked? The person that's really offended because God's like, you really should have asked me and you've been asking your entire life for a relationship. You've been asking your entire life for God to provide a door or maybe show a sign on which college to go to or for those of you that are leaving or to what school to transfer to or what group of friends to hang out with or just a, a situation you've been asking Right? You've been asking to, to receive something from the Lord. He says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here, the real problem is exposed. Selfishness. The real problem is that we're selfish. We're all given talents, abilities, resources from God and then we think, well, maybe I should use it for myself, my own gain, right? We, we have our talents and we feel like we have to do something with it. Well, if you have a musical ability, you feel like you should use it for God, quote unquote, right? And you feel like you have to because you have the ability. And so oftentimes that we'll use those abilities for our own gain, our own glory. And that was, you know, that's my testimony. Is that I used the things that I was good at or I thought I was good at for my own gain even though I didn't realize it. It became an idol in my life. The thing that I wasn't ready to get, get rid of revealed that I was really holding that thing as an idol. So are those things to be wasted on ourselves? Obviously not. Just like good food is not meant to be enjoyed alone, everything we have is to be used in worship of God and for directing people to him. If you have good food, you don't want to just eat it by yourself. You want to tell other people about it, right? Like when I have ramen from Ipudo, or I have ramen noodles. Everyone knows what that is, hopefully. If you don't, shame on you. You get like a really good cannoli, with the chocolate chips inside, and it's like the homemade ones. Mm. Now, if you, I mean, I guess it's good if you eat it by yourself, but like there's only so many cannolis you can eat by yourself. You kind of want to show it to other people, and kind of like eat it in front of them so you feel better about what you're doing. I don't know, maybe that's only me. But I can only eat half a cannoli, so 
I'm just kidding. I can eat the whole, th whole thing. I'm going on a tangent. I get distracted by food. But just as you have good food and it's best enjoyed with other people, in the same way, the gifts and talents that you have received from the Lord are best used in the presence of the Lord and in the company of other people to grab their attention and direct it towards the Savior. If you have a talent and ability, good. It's not a bad thing. Obviously, God is using it for something. The question is, are you going to use it for your own gain or for the Lord's? It's not for our own enjoyment or prosperity. And that's why I think health and wealth gospels are, are, don't really even make sense, right? To say that you can name it and claim it, you could nab it and grab it, I don't know. Whatever it is. All those things are for self-gain. So if we're fighting with one another, it's because we're fighting for our own glory. And God will not empower a person to serve themselves. Look at the language he uses in verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Adulterers and adulteresses. He uses the language of cheating in this passage. And have we gotten so rooted in the soil of this world? Have we grasped so hard onto the earth that we can't think about heavenly things? Have we spent so much time with ungodly friends that we don't even desire the things of the spirit anymore? Do we infiltrate our minds with so much garbage and junk that we can't think about eternity? And all, all that we can think about is the stuff on this world. Well, you know what? Self-pursuit is cheating on God. In adultery, people cheat on their spouse not because they really love the other person. It's because they seek themselves. They say things like, I deserve better than this person. I just deserve to be loved. And I, I deserve to be treated by someone that appreciates me because I'm really worth something. That's the heart behind adultery. And that's exactly what we do to God when we say, I'm going to do my own thing. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross how many times? What did I just say? Daily. Take up his cross every single day. And in what way do we deny ourselves when we say, I'm going to evangelize to the next person? In what way do we deny ourselves when we say, I'll go to the next prayer meeting that they have? Or I'm too busy to read my Bible. Or I'm too angry to forgive that person. Or I'm too scared to do this or to do that. How in the world are you denying yourself when you give in to your basic urges and, and pleasures? The, the things of the flesh, the nature. If you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But be very careful because the flesh is tricky. It'll make you think, it'll make you rationalize that what you're feeling can be just as easily forgotten. That conviction of the Holy Spirit, that little, small little voice that says, hey, you really should go to the prayer meeting. Hey, you really should take the next 10 minutes and pray. It'll tell you, you know what, you don't really have to, I mean, you're tired. I mean, there's other things you could be doing. You got a lot of homework. 
that still small voice wants to be heard. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that requires us denying ourselves. You know, I, I really think that sometimes the basic rule, it's not necessarily like in the Bible. But I just think sometimes the things that come natural for you to do it, you should probably not do that thing. And the things that you don't want to do, you should probably do those things. Just naturally. Whenever you're like, I really want to talk to that girl, you really shouldn't talk to that girl. Whenever you're like, I really don't want to go pray, you really should pray. And you know what? You will never, we've said this a billion times, you will never regret the time you sacrificed for God. You'll never regret a time that you spent in the word soaking in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never done that. I don't know anyone that has. And it just really confuses me because I still see backslidden Christians coming to church on Sunday who live like a wreck throughout the week and say, yeah, I love God, I do the thing. And they're just practicing religion. I'm telling you, you're watching it. All I am is a glimpse into your future. You're going to see the exact same scenario play out in your life unless you do something about it. You know, you always want to see those time travelers that can go back and tell you about your life. And that's what the word of God does. It shows us the patterns of the people of God and how they've fallen away from him. Think about it. This is, this is the Old Testament language. Adulterers and adulteresses. Just like in the Old Testament where you have in Jeremiah and all these Old Testament books, the prophets are like, repent! And they repent for a little bit and then they fall away again. They forget. They're cheating on God in the same way our friends cheat on God. And are we doing something about it? If you saw a married couple, you probably don't really have any married friends. I do. It's kind of weird. If you have a married couple and you saw your friend uh, who's married was flirting with someone else, wouldn't you say something about it? Wouldn't you be like, oh, that's a little awkward? But when our friends are flirting with the world, we don't say anything about it. We just kind of give up and like, well, you know, well, they're already gone, so that's it. You know, I've seen two, at least two of my friends, uh, three actually, get a divorce. They're Christians. And it's one of the saddest things to watch. Because you watch two hearts that were mended together under the guise of Christianity, under the name of Jesus, separated. And now there's strife and now there's all kinds of hate built into that. You know, and you'll do anything to prevent those things from happening. And we should have that same conviction for those people that are walking away from the Lord. That's why we're to remember that we're not our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Look at verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? If the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, we're not to give him any roommates. The Holy Spirit can only have the whole entirety of your heart. There is no room for anyone else. No other thing else but the Holy Spirit. Just think about like you move into an apartment, you get old enough, you're in college, you go to the dorm. Let's say that you move in an apartment and you think you're by yourself and you're like planning out how you're going to 
do the space and you're going to plan out like what it looks like, you have posters hung up. And then you find out like the landlord is like, hey, and we got a rapist that's going to spend uh, the rest of the six months with you while you're, you know, rooming at this dorm. How would you feel about that? You'd be like, uh, what? You'd probably move out, right? And if you're not welcoming the Holy Spirit inside of your heart, how do you think he's going to feel? If we're adding all these different things, if we're adding garbage into our hearts, how do you think the Holy Spirit's going to feel? I love this verse. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thank the Lord for grace. If it were not for grace, we'd all have to be really worried right now, wouldn't we? Anytime that you sin, you'd have to ask for repentance and hope that you covered every single sin, right? And even if you asked for forgiveness, you would die and not be sure if you'd be counted worthy for God at the end. But thankfully, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone or how far your friends have gone, there's always the grace of God able to cover any of our sins and all of our sins. But there's one exception. And that is, God resists the proud, but gives grace to who? What's it say? The who? The humble. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me, uh, gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you come to the Lord, he won't cast you out. But... The requirement for this grace is humility, which means you have to admit that you're in need of grace, of forgiveness, and want to receive his grace. He's not going to force it upon you. You have to be willing to receive the free gift that he has for us. So if you have sinned, which all of us have, you know, anytime I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking from my own heart. I'm talking from my own experiences. We've all done this. We've all screwed up. We've all had opportunities to share with a friend and bring them back to God and totally failed. But if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. Verse 7, how do you practice this out? How do we deny ourselves? How do we live a life for God? You know, A.W. A. Tozer has this quote that I'll never forget. He says, every man must choose his world. And every day you have that option. Do I want to choose the world of God or the world of man? Do I want to choose the self or choose the Lord? So you can't please the Lord if you're looking to please yourself. It doesn't work that way. So how do you do this? What do you do? How do we deny ourselves? What does it look like? He says in verse 7, therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. Well, what does that mean to submit to God? Look at verse, uh, well, the same verse, but next phrase. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say resist temptation. It doesn't say resist all temptation and it will flee from you. Because that would just look really weird. And every time you're tempted, like, oh, no, I need to resist temptation. It's not what it says. It says resist the devil. 
Now, obviously, you're to resist temptations in the aspect that you're to not give in to temptation, but not to resist the aspect of temptation so that you're never tempted ever again. And we went over that in uh, the first chapter, is that God even uses temptations to fortify us. And it's not a sin to be tempted, it's a sin to, sin to seek out temptation and to give in to temptation. But if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And that's the promise of Jesus. We often forget the, the, the aspect of spiritual warfare. We'll forget that we live in a, a realm where Satan wants to bring you down. And you wonder why we have these trials. We wonder why we have these illnesses. And why we have these problems and difficulties. Why we can't just think straight sometimes. Why we can't pray. Why we can't bring these people back to Christ. You have to resist the devil. And the promise is he will flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise that I think we, we need to be reminded of all the time. But what does it actually mean to draw near to God? If you draw near to God, he's going to do the same thing to you. But what does that actually mean? Well, Psalm 24, verse 3 through 4 says, Who may ascend into the, Lord, the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who is able to draw near to the Lord? Listen to what it says. He who has, a, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. It says those that have clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, those that clean up their act and clean up their mind. And that's why he says in the next verse, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, look at what you're doing. We talked about a couple weeks ago, how you can't just be here's the word, but you're responsible to act on what you know. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, you are responsible to do something about it. And also to purify your hearts. You, it says double-minded. I mean, think about the first message that I ever taught almost a year ago now. It was June 22nd. So it's almost a month. The first thing that I ever said is that, and it's the exact same quote from A.W. Tozer, every man must choose his world. And we had Elijah, right, was on the battle of Mount Carmel. He says, will you serve God or serve Baal? And they were limping back and forth because they couldn't make their, up their mind. They couldn't make a decision whether they really wanted to follow God or follow their own desires. They were double-minded. It says next in verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now it's not saying that you're not supposed to be happy. Obviously that's not what it's saying. But what this is saying is to the person who is double-minded, the person that doesn't take sin so seriously, the person that laughs at sin, that jokes about sin, that doesn't think it's that big of a deal. He says to lament and mourn and weep. When's the last time that we've had godly sorrow over our sin? When's the last time that I've had that? I can tell you a specific instance, but it's a little too personal, so I won't tell you. There are a couple things in my life that I won't tell anyone. And that's one of them. But for your own lives, and I know there's some things that you wouldn't share with other people because they're just too personal. 
And have you had that kind of godly sorrow about your sin? Do you cry about the fact that your other friends that are Christians might end up in hell for eternity? Do you ever think about that? If we think about those kinds of things, it should, it should move us to action. Right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He was moved. And he did it for us. So much so that he did something about it. He didn't just look at the state of the world and be like, well, that's a shame. Well, they just screwed everything up and that's it. He looked at the state of the world and he did something about it. So what are we going to do? Well, Christ died and rose again and calls us to die. Spiritually, not spiritually, the opposite of that. Calls us to die to ourselves so that we can have true life in him. But how do you generate this kind of godly sorrow? What if you just don't feel like it? What if you don't really feel bad about what, what's happening around you? Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, I think really illustrated this. When Isaiah was talking to uh, God and he saw God for who he is in his beauty, majesty, and glory. He says, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's by spending time in his word and in prayer in fellowship with other believers, praying about the state of our world, that we are able to have that godly sorrow and realize our sinfulness and how we've, we've missed the mark on what God has called us to be. You realize you have a summer in front of you in which you can do literally anything you want to do. Especially those of you that just got your licenses, you could like get up and leave and run away from home if you really wanted to. Please don't do it. I'll get in trouble. They'll find a way to blame me. But you can literally make any decision that you want. You're growing up into adulthood where you can leave the home, go off to college, not be accountable to your parents anymore. The question is, what are you going to do when no one else is looking? Because that explains who you really are. What are you going to do when your parents aren't telling you, hey, you shouldn't drink, hey, you shouldn't smoke, hey, you shouldn't curse, hey, you shouldn't hang out with those people? How are you going to act when no one else is around you and you're on your computer? How are you going to act when no one else is around you and you're with a person that doesn't know you. That shows who you really are. And that's why it says in verse 10. Humble yourselves where? In the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. How will you act when no one else is looking? How will you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Because that's what shows that you're a Christian is that down payment, the Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying, hey, this isn't right. What you're doing is wrong. I, uh, I was selling books back to uh, Brookdale Community College like four years, I don't know, six years. It was a long time ago, back when I was at Brookdale. And uh, I was selling books back and I was just, you know, I had writing all over my books. And if you sell them back with writing, they're like five bucks. But if you sell them back normally, it's more money. So the guy asked me, Does, is there any writing in here? I was like, no. <laughs> and I sold it to him. And he's like, all right, 50 bucks. And I, I walked away. I was like, yeah, no, this is bad. And like I tried to like walk back to my car. And the whole way, I just had this burden and conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
and I'm really thinking, I was like, this really isn't that big of a deal. It's like, the guy probably doesn't care. It's $50. It's not that much money. But, you know, it was the Holy Spirit really telling me, it's like, but you lied. And this is wrong. And it wasn't because I was afraid of getting in trouble. It's not like the police were going to stop me and be like, hey, you really screwed up because you told them that there's no writing and there's clearly writing in this book. We're going to have to throw you in jail. That's when I realized there's something more, right? It's not just you don't want to get in trouble, but there's you want to do the right thing because it pleases God. And that's what I really felt in my heart. And so I'm like limping back and forth the entire time. I was like, I don't really know. And like I get in my car. I'm like, I'm driving home. I do not care. And I was like, I, I can't drive home. So I go back and I talk to the guy. It's like, listen, I am so sorry. I lied. I wrote in the book. And look at it. And, I just, and he's like, I, I don't care. Keep the money. And I was like, really? He's like, yes. Your, your sins have been forgiven. He's like, okay. And I walk away. And I was so happy. And I was like, you see, it wasn't that big of a deal. But you know what I had to do? I had to humble myself. I had to admit that I lied. I had to admit that I was wrong. And that's not an easy thing to do. And we'll have that voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us saying, hey, what you've done is wrong and you have to make it right. And it requires you sacrificing yourself, denying yourself, humbling yourself. But in the end, it's going to please me. People might hate you. People might not understand why you did it. Sometimes you got to confess, you got to uh, tell other people what you've done wrong and it seems like it would do more harm than good by confessing. But you know what? It pleases the Lord. So humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and what will he do? He will lift you up. It's little things of self-denial. You know what it is? It's denying the self when you want to check your Facebook during a Sunday or a Friday sermon. It's denying the self when you really want to tell the person next to you what you're going to do after youth group, during youth group. It's the little habits of just saying, you know what, I'm just going to practice self-denial. Joel, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. I quote often, but it says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing and your grief, grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. And I've mentioned this before, but the interesting thing about that, and I always think about this, is that when God says to these people, turn to me with your fasting and weeping, if you read chapter 1, that's exactly what happened, is that they were in... Uh, a famine. They didn't have any food. So it's like, God's like, hey, I know you don't have any food, but start fasting. It's like, well, we haven't eaten in like seven days. So how are we going to fast? And what you see is so many times we'll say, well, God, I don't really have time to read my Bible. I would love to like give you the time that I, I really do not have time. And God says, give me the time that you do have. I believe it was Martin Luther that one said, well, I'm going to be really busy today, therefore I have to spend at least three hours in prayer. It's counterintuitive. Usually we think, oh, I'm busy today, and I think God will give me grace if I don't spend time with him. It's the little acts of self-denial that lead us to
to the throne room of God that break our hearts and are enabling us to see with eternally minded eyes, to set our focus on him so that we can live every single day taking up our cross and following him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you know what? This isn't to guilt trip you. Obviously not. Probably half of you don't even need this message. This is probably a message for someone else out there. The question is, are you going to bring that message to them? Are you going to say something about it? Are you going to do something about it? Are you going to live your life daily dying to self and living for God? Because when you do, that's when you find everything that you've really been looking for, isn't it? That's when you find Jesus. And when you gaze upon the beauty of Jesus, it's not like, wow, Jesus, well, I thought you were going to be a little bit more beautiful. I thought this was going to be a little bit better of an experience. Can you imagine saying that when you get to heaven? No. You're never going to regret, regret the time that you spend for Jesus. Andrew Murray says, Until this conviction of the wrongness of our carnal state as believers comes to each one of us, until we are willing to get this conviction from God, to take time before God to be humbled and convicted, we can never become spiritual men. That's the word. It's conviction. And it begins with denial of the self. Acting upon the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Overthrowing the idols that have gathered in our hearts. So that's my challenge to you guys today. Are you going to deny yourself? I'm not saying that you have to resist every single desire that you have. I'm not saying that you should just forget about everything and just like not like anything. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is when you deny yourself, that's when you find your, your true desires, the things that you really want, are free to enjoy God and be fulfilled. So in other words, if you want to remember it in a clever way, to deny all desires is self-defeating, but to deny thyself is desire-freeing. To deny all desires is self-defeating, but to deny thyself is desire-freeing. In other words, when you deny all desires, it's self-defeating because it contradicts itself. If you deny all desires, you'd have to deny desire to deny desires, which doesn't make any sense. But when you deny yourself, then your desires are able to be actualized. Then you find, as Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So are we going to deny ourselves? Are we going to do the things that require us to act on our convictions? And that's why I'm going to ask you guys to do tonight as we close our eyes and bow our heads before the Lord right now.